Black Cats Run Podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll. This is Black Cats Run. Today's episode, a little bit more on lactate threshold and some tales from my twilight zone. Let's get into today's episode. I'm not a lactate threshold evangelist by any means, but I am a historian at least in terms of the kind of way in which I like to think about these things. And one of the things that has become clear to me from looking at and thinking about this stuff is that the lactate threshold is a contemporary identification or attempt to more specifically identify something that the most successful people in endurance sport have found through other mechanisms primarily pedagogical ones for at least the last 70 to 80 years. And I think if you looked further into the actual practices of some of these individuals in athletics and you peeled back some of the kind of performative narratives of like toughness and and suffering and, and pain, and you set those to the side, I think you might find that this extends even further back. Because it makes sense that there's going to be some sort of like a critical zone or critical state or critical kind of environment in which you're going to see the higher level of adaptive response, right? The nature of adaptive response to stress is that like, you know, there's going to be some sort of a parabola effect to that. And trying to identify that and trying to use the contemporary understandings and and scientific concepts that we're using to try to like understand physiologically and mechanistically what's happening with training um, is what I'm trying to, I guess, in a sense, advocate for on the podcast, because I think that the opportunity to um, empower understandings really flows from that. So having kind of reframed that thesis, what does this lactate threshold thing have to do with my tales from my twilight zone. So over the weekend, um, weekend prior to recording this, anyway, um, I went down to Cape Cod and I wanted to do the Hyannis Marathon. And I think in the last couple of years, I've kind of walked into and, and discovered, um, you know, the world of road racing in the winter, which you know, for a long time, at least for me, the idea of going and running races outdoors in the winter was like absurd, you know? And I think if you're brought into that indoor track culture, it kind of reinforces the idea that, well, you know, you need to go indoors in the winter. And I know that uh, in other parts of the world outside of the U.S. cross country is maybe more of a winter sport, but, you know, certainly it's true that depending on how much snow you get, that might sort of be impractical because trying to run cross country through even just six to eight inches of snow is, you know, radically changing basically um, what you're really doing with that kind of an activity. But I've come to really appreciate uh, doing running races between November from November through March because the weather is just so much better. And it's kind of crazy to me how much of running and cycling for that matter too, but really any outdoor endurance sport Um, how much those are focused on sort of developing through the summer. And there's, I think, this kind of idea that maybe the weather is better, but maybe that's not so true because I think that weather is more exhaustive. uh, It's more demanding. And, you know, the extent to which you start to overheat and or find yourself limited by how warm it can be is pretty significant pretty quickly. And when you start to run 
races in the winter, you start to realize like, wow, like this is a totally different experience when I'm not battling with the temperature factor. And so last year I had gone to do the Hyannis Marathon and that was basically a total disaster for me uh, because I had, you know, so this is one of those injuries in running that sounds basically borderline fake. But anybody who's experienced it knows that it's not, you know, shin splints, which, you know, if you try to find stuff about that, it's really not well understood and and trying to treat it isn't really responsive. And so I had been experimenting because I'm my own favorite guinea pig. I had been experimenting with uh, doing jump rope as kind of like a plyometric. And I had been liking how that was going. And, you know, after a month um, of doing that and I was also doing, you know, full depth squatting, so I don't, I guess I don't really know if it was one or the other, but it seems more likely it's the jump rope because that's the thing that I eliminated. And that's when I started to see it, um, go away. And then when I brought the jump rope back a couple months later, it very quickly, you know, reemerged, but like overwhelming crippling, uh, shin pain, which ended up kind of pretty much, you know, surprisingly sort of screwing me over for four months. And I couldn't really do any kind of training or preparation that I wanted to do, which then, you know, ultimately led to going to the unbound, uh, 200 in Kansas, basically being at least by my, you know, relative personal standard, basically being like totally out of shape and sort of forcing my way, um, you know, through that, I guess, crucible of excruciating misery. I've had interesting experiences though, going to races and being injured, and a couple weeks before going to Hyannis last year, I had done a USATF New England four-mile road race um, in southern New Hampshire. And I had somehow I had injured my ribs, um, like the intercostal muscle or something got bruised or it felt like it might if you fall down and you badly bruise or your ribs or your side or crack a rib, but I don't didn't do anything specific to cause that, but it was there and it hurt. And I went out and I did the race and I was basically having, couldn't breathe comfortably, couldn't take deep breaths because of the inflammation in the diaphragm because of that. And I went out and I ran and I felt great. And I ran, you know, for me, I pretty awesome, you know, 545 pace or whatever for four miles, which based on what I've been doing was great. And then, you know, like the day before I basically couldn't run and the day after I basically couldn't run. So, you know, and then in the past, I've had experiences where I've sprained my ankle terribly to the point where I could not run and I could just sort of basically jump, you know, on one leg around and just sort of have my leg with the sprained ankle buckling underneath me. And for some reason, I decided to go to the start of the Thanksgiving road race in town anyway. And this is when I was in college, maybe a sophomore in college, somewhere around there. But um, then the gun literally right went off and I felt great. And I ran the whole race and was strong and felt like there was nothing wrong with me. And I crossed the finish line and immediately couldn't walk again. So and I think that, you know, I think that's a exhibitive of how much we can experience that situational arousal or stimulus just on a psychological and, you know, maybe adrenal epinephral uh, level of response to those kinds of situations. But it's sort of given me this idea that even if I feel like a cripple, I can still go out. And if I do a race, I can feel uh, very differently. And so I went, I said, well, I'm gonna just do this Hyannis thing. And marathon, I was down there with Jillian Bennett. And we, uh, you know, we kind of warmed up a little bit. I mean, not that there's really any point, to be honest, in warming up before a marathon, at least in my opinion, unless you're looking at it some like absolute really high level performance day for you that you've really prepped for. But conversely, you know, the more prepared you are, maybe the less and less you need to warm up. I think the value of warming up is kind of pretty overrated. I think you do about five minutes and then you're probably good. Um, but people like their elaborate warm up routines. And I do not think that there's a lot of evidence in terms of practical evidence that really supports that um, for any kind of like middle distance to endurance racing, um, you know, further than, 
you know, long, you know, of maybe let's say like 10 minutes or longer in duration. So, but we warm up and we start running and as like felt bad immediately could feel the pain in my legs. And I went around, you know, for 17 miles, whatever we were doing, 645s, 648s. And then I was like, nope, I'm done. And, you know, Jillian proceeded to run the last 10 miles at 630 pace or just about 630 pace, you know, and, and won the race in 259. And I was like, you know, I'd really like to go and redeem myself. And it looks like the core, I like the course. I don't like that it's windy because it's on the coast. There's always going to be some sort of wind. Um, you know, that's the downside to racing on the seacoast. But, you know, it's like, okay, it's in the winter, the weather's good. And so get to signed up and, you know, a bunch of snowstorms, snowed like three or four times in the, in the week leading up to the Hyannis Marathon. And I was like, whatever, right? You know, if it's snowing, you can't really, you know, you're not going to do the same running sessions. If it's there's snow and ice all over the road, you just can't. And then you go slower. And so there's a lot of 10 minute pace running. And, you know, I was like, despite that, my legs were just feeling like total garbage. And I was like, well, I never really feel good leading up to a race. It's like my body is or my brain unconsciously is like trying to get me to not do it by making me feel as terrible as possible. But I have kind of learned to kind of not put read into that stuff. So we go, we get to the get to the race. It's like, wow, incredible weather. It's like 38 to 42 degrees. You know, got the shorts and the singlet. You know, I've got, you know, my 12 uh, maple syrup packets, you know, with their 25 grams of carbohydrate each. I've got some salt tablets, which I don't actually think the salt tablets maybe really do anything, but it doesn't seem like there's any harm, you know, in it. And I'm like, this is, you know, let's do this. You know, we did, I had done the Millinocket marathon in December and that was just like awesome. I felt great. It was just like, that's the feeling that, you know, I makes me want to keep going out and racing, just being in that zone in that state of like, I'm just crushing it and I'm working so hard, but I just feel so strong, right? You're really finding a high level of challenge and you're really bringing out that level of skill. So we went out and like first two miles and probably like 1350 and like, well, this is slow as crap. Okay. This is like incredibly slow and that's good, right? That's what you want. Like if it feels really slow, that's the idea. If it feels like quick, you're especially the longer the race is, the more like you are to be totally screwed. And then, you know, but really after a mile, mile and a half, my feet are starting to hurt. And I, uh, after the main half marathon this fall, where I literally cut both of my arches open on the arch of the alpha flies, I've been, you know, wrapping uh, my feet through the arch with KT tape. And I put like three pieces on there and I, you know, it's a little longer than the width of the foot. So then I have the double overlap right through the area of the arch. So there's basically six layers of tape through there and that's worked great. Um, but as you go, my feet are just killing me. And it's the kind of thing where I immediately start questioning, like, is this all in my head? Am I just imagining this is, you know, am I just like being an absolute baby? Like what is going on? And I said, well, I'll run until I get to 10 K. But, you know, usually if I feel good, you know, I'll be chatting and talking and I'm doing this with, with Jillian, right? So I'm not necessarily just talking to myself, but we'll be talking and, you know, I can tell that she feels pretty good and I am like, I can't talk. I'm not really paying attention to what she's saying. I'm just becoming overwhelmingly preoccupied with it. And, you know, I had this idea that I'm just going to have 25 grams of carbs just like every 15 minutes the whole way. And so, you know, I go to the first maple syrup and just like, so just feel just like the act of taking out the maple syrup and trying to eat it just felt tiring. I'm like, okay, I just doesn't feel right. And so I'm going, going to get three miles, you know, it's going around these, you know, big puddles because there's like some flooding in the road from the rain. It had rained in, in mass, you know, the day before and we had gotten big snow in up in New Hampshire, but you're going through and it's just like whole, you know, I can't, I can't think about anything else. So I just like, you know, I, I'm going to loosen my shoes because I've, for whatever reason, I freaking hate running shoes. You know, they just kill my feet. 
when I get them when they're new. And I've never understood people who are like, oh, new shoes feel so great. I got shoes. I, I basically loosen them so much that like if the laces were pulled out anymore, I wouldn't have enough length over left to tie them. I can basically, you know, kick my leg forward and the shoe will come right off. And if it's any tighter than that, it's excruciating. You know, I had tried to get back into alpine skiing um, maybe four or five years ago and uh, with my dad and one of my brothers. And, you know, I enjoyed it when I was younger and then kind of in, in college. And after that, I hadn't done it in a while. And so we went out to do it and like, you know, a couple runs and I was just like getting to the bottom and I was basically ripping the boots off and it was just excruciating pain. I mean, nothing like materially is like happening. I'm not breaking my foot, but it's like in tears, like it's overwhelming. And, you know, pain is such an interesting phenomenon because, you know, even if it is psychosomatic, like it's still somatic, right? You're still experiencing it. So I was like, I don't forget this. Like, I'm not going to wait until 10 K. This is awful. It's not like we're going to run 250 or 247 or anything like that. We're just kind of doing this, you know, as a lark. And I just want to go out and, you know, have a good, you know, hard, long run like I did in Millinocket in December. And we had done the Boston Prep 16 mile, like, you know, maybe about a month before. And that had been good, you know, hadn't felt very fresh, but ended up, you know, feeling strong after 10K. And it's just like, okay, I'm who cares? I'm going to stop and I'm going to loosen my shoes. Maybe that's the problem. And I wasn't thinking about, and at first I thought I'm just imagining it and we'll just go away. And then it's not going away. So I say, okay, screw this. So I said, you can just keep going. No, no. So, all right, fine. So I'm like, I'm not going to rush. I just need to loosen these. So I loosen the shoes up and we start running again. And I'm like, okay, I still feel like pretty lethargic, you know, but okay, this feels better. Maybe I can get in a groove. And then like, you know, my feet just kind of start aching again. And then I'm just like, you know what? Get to like about the five mile mark. I just said, forget it. Like, you just keep going. You clearly feel better than me. Like, I'll either wait for our friend Emily and and run, you know, with her, um, you know, because she was only going to do the half marathon or like, I don't know. But like, I'm not going to do the whole thing. I'm just slowing you down. Like, just go do your thing. And so I stopped and I waited. And then, you know, I ended up just like cutting back and running six miles and just going back to the parking lot. And, you know, and of course, after I stop, like my feet don't, aren't hurting me, you know, running back to the parking lot. Right. So it's like, okay, what the hell's going on? And I think, oh, I'm tired. I, you know, woke up this morning and I was like exhausted. Didn't feel like I had really slept well. Okay. Maybe I just need to sleep more. And then, you know, I didn't run on Monday. I just rode. And then I, go and, and do, go to do the my 2K repeats with a Jillian and uh, Caleb. And it's just like, holy crap, like feet, just like on fire. I get back, you know, my feet are sore walking, you know, you know, around the house going up to shower. I was like, okay, so I'm not imagining this, you know, because it's still here, you know. And then today I ran and, you know, that was gone. So that's good, right? I mean, I don't think did anything lasting harm to that. But, you know, you kind of then look at that and you say, okay, well, maybe I tape, did I tape the feet up just too tight, you know, because I do know, I know I pulled the tape around. But these kinds of questions, that kind of experience, right, is you can look at that and be like, well, I guess that, you know, all of this lactate threshold stuff that is getting, you know, um, you know, run up the flagpole here on Black Cat's Run is a bunch of crap. But I think that it's reflective of really actually a couple different things. I think, number one, it shows how difficult that internal dialogue, that conversation, and I really feel like it's a conversation with yourself that you have to have kind of like again and again as you're doing this stuff is. And to me, it was kind of a sense of like, I guess I just can't freaking run. Like, what's the point? (laughs) You know, if this is really all I can do, if I go out and I run two miles at basically 6.55 pace, and then, like, I have to stop 
because like my feet are like on fire for and for no apparent reason other than like I maybe put tape on them that was like pulled like a little bit snug instead of just like carefully, you know, setting it down without any pull on the tape whatsoever. Like, you know, am I just inherently fragile? I also think it's the Frank Shorter curse where every time Frank Shorter shows up at a race that I'm doing and and gives his speech about, you know, you know, set out for what you think you can do and then pull back 30%. I then feel like absolutely stale, you know, and it it happened at the Hyannis last year. It happened at the Marine Corps Marathon and then it happened at um, this, this Hyannis Marathon. But, you know, when you look at that stuff, like how do you assess that? How do you respond to that? How do you decide what is and isn't the problem? And I share this, you know, story, uh, not because of, oh, what was me, but because I think it's like exemplary of how when these things don't go the way we want or we don't meet whatever expectations are, that there's a tendency to just question yourself. Am I not being tough enough to blame yourself for not working hard enough? And maybe not everybody has that reaction, but I think that's a more common reaction than not. Because I, And I think as a culture, that kind of personal responsibility narrative is there. And even if you're aware and mindful of it, and you, you know, as, as I, you know, very evidently do say that that's overblown and overrated, like it's still like embedded in our psyche to some extent. And the fact that it's embedded in there doesn't validate it. It just shows how strong um, a cultural message that is. And it also shows how difficult it is to kind of change our mindsets about things and that our perceptions of you know, self-worth and, you know, responsibility and ownership for certain outcomes are like really embedded. And it's not easy to, you know, change or alter our reaction to that stuff. You know, and like one of the things I say thinking to myself as well, okay, do I, am I not running fast enough in my runs? You know, I, I haven't done any 30 mile runs, um, since before the Marine Corps marathon is that the problem. It's like, you know, I ran two miles and immediately like couldn't run comfortably, period. And, you know, same feeling of the ski boots, like you just can't, you know, you get to a certain level of discomfort and it's just not possible to overcome that. And like, you know, if absolute imperative situation, could I have staggered around? Probably, but it would have been pretty bad uh, in terms of a, how it felt, and then B, you know, how slowly it was. And it's just, that's what's weird about this stuff, but it's also that eternal puzzle of like things happen that you don't necessarily expect. And then how do we figure that out, right? The simplest explanation, you know, is probably the best explanation than Occam's razor. Well, the simplest thing is the thing that I did that I don't do when I'm out training is I tape my arches you know, for good cause, right, to protect against chafing and, you know, blood blisters and whatever. And and it's worked in the past. It just worked just fine at the Boston prep race. And today, you know, and that day, it didn't work, right? You know, the simplest explanation would be that. But that desire almost, uh, and it's, maybe it's weird to call it a desire because I don't want to blame myself. I don't want to question myself. But there's some that need to, uh, you know, when I interviewed and well, really not interviewed, but had a conversation with Paige on the podcast, uh, Kostanecki, like the idea of self-flagellation came up that idea to like blame yourself as if like the more you blame or punish or self reprimand, like, you know, the more you're going to like be able to correct the issue. I mean, that's just the automatic, um, the default, you know, but that idea of, how do we react to and respond to these kinds of mistakes, you know, and how do we do that constructively? Right. And like, you know, learning how to like cool your jets and be like, okay, I don't need to quit doing this. Like, you know, I've been running fine. You know what? Sometimes weird stuff happens and it's okay to drop out. You know, I'm not a professional runner. I'm not like being paid to make appearances and reach finish lines. You know, this isn't my job. Um, and, you know, if it was my job, I wouldn't make any money at money at it because I'm not fast enough. But if it was my job and that was all I did, then, you know, maybe I would have, you know, a 
more opportunity to kind of refine my mental checklists and, you know, think about all of those little things. But it's easy to forget about stuff like that. And sometimes something as unremarkable as putting tape on your feet, you know, can totally ruin or torpedo your outing, you know. And sometimes you don't really figure that out until, you know, later in the afternoon as you've like talked through it with yourself, you know, for the 15th time trying to figure out what the heck is wrong with me. But I think we're told so many times when we're getting into this stuff that, you know, well, we're not mentally tough enough, you know, when things don't go well, we're conditioned to go to that space and, and identify that. Another tale from the twilight zone. I've been kind of running this kind of experiment, if you will, on myself over the last month um, with my intensity on the bike. So I had established uh, back at the end of January when I, I and mean, if you want to go back to my first uh, light bulb burst episode in that series, um, you can see some of that. But I had established back um, at the end of January that, okay, I'm going to train with the lactate threshold of the point at which the lactate starts to accumulate. And now for me, that happens at about 0.9 to 1.1 millimoles. But the standard interpretation is to say two. And I've argued um, on other episodes that that's not the correct interpretation because you actually look at the evidence and the information that's out there. I think what you see is that there's total inconsistency and that people don't understand this stuff For example, uh, there's a recent kind of study slash review um, that came out this year um, talking about the Norwegian training and the lactate threshold intensity model and using the lactate. And one of the things that's presented in it, and, you know, Marius Backen is one of the authors um, listed on it. Um, it's more of like a review of methodology than it is like an actual study, but it, it's written up as like a article in like a, you know, science journal kind of thing. But, you know, it identifies this range as being two to 4.5 millimoles as this like medium intensity uh, concept, right? So it's like entering into the argument, low intensity, high intensity, blah, 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 right? Those archetypes of, um, you know, scholarly, you know, rhetoric, debate, bullshit, whatever you want to think about that, right? You know, sort of engaging with those um, tropes and the idioms of that kind of um, rhetorical space. But basically puts out there that, you know, okay, this state is uh, exhibited at two millimoles is is the cutoff. And, you know, training, you know, around three is kind of like where you want to be at. But that... So that's right there is going to perpetuate this concept um, where people are going to go out and they're going to start, this is going to become more popular. People are going to buy lactate meters. And maybe that is great because maybe they'll be competing manufacturers of blood lactate meters in the U.S. and maybe they'll bring down prices of lactate meters in this test strips. Maybe there'll be like a better technology um, to try to get that data. Maybe not. But, you know, some competition in that market would be good for those of us who want to use that. But what's going to happen is for most people that applying this stuff isn't going to play out. You know, there's going to be a surge in popularity and then people aren't going to actually get the results from it. There'll be a percentage of the population for whom that sort of like two to three or two to 4.5 millimole guideline actually works, actually makes sense. Um, And so those will be the people who have success with it. And then there'll be the population of the pe- of people for whom it, it just doesn't. That's not the right number. And that's because what you need to do is you need to develop that range from the value at which that starts to accumulate, right? So for me, as, you know, I'm, when I do the test protocol to find that, you know, at the increased efforts of wattage and in the spring when the weather's conducive to doing it, I'll, I'll probably go out and try it on running track. Um, and, and bring that up for the pod to discuss kind of what that experience was like for people who want to think a little bit more about how they can apply it more directly in their running. Um, although it's the exact same concept, right? You're sort of basing it off of running velocity, um, you know, although you could use a stride pod. I may get one of those at some point this year and uh, experiment with that too. But 
so for me, it's like the range is kind of like one, one and a half, right? Maybe up to two. And that's kind of where I'm in that zone that's equivalent, right? Because for me, my baseline is 0.9. Some people, the baseline is two. But we're perpetuating this notion in this article with Marius Backen, and I can't remember the other authors off the top of my, friend, off the top of my head, and I don't have it in front of me. Um, but like, that's going to perpetuate this kind of myth. And this is, you start to see how these kinds of like um, absolutist dogmatic understandings, you know, get out there. And while the reality is, if people are working at two millimoles, they're not all exhibiting the same level of exertion. But people are going to look away for that takeaway, and that two millimole number is going to be, you know, the takeaway. So, um, for me, with my test, um, end of January, um, you know, what I demonstrated was that my lactate threshold, you know, happens at, at about 0.9 to 1.5 ish, if you want to be, you know, ballparky about that, uh, millimoles, because things like how hydrated you are in your blood plasma is going to like change the like concentration of, of accumulated lactate, you know, uh, which is what you're measuring, right? So, but for me, basically 240 watts. Okay. That's the value at which um, I'm, I'm, you know, working. And so, you know, I started doing workouts on this model. And what I noticed is well, my heart rate is super low compared to my perception of what it should be. So I'll give you an example. Or this example will kind of give some context. So I'm doing, you know, these repetitions, doing intervals, like, well, I'll do 20 by two minutes with a short recovery. I'll do four by 10 minutes with a 145 recovery, short recovery, 240. And my heart rate's like 148, 150. And the effort, it just feels basically like I don't even have to think about it. You know, now I'm looking at the lactate, it's like 1.6, 1.5. Okay, right? So the data is suggesting this is where I should be. But the perception of it is just like, this is so easy, right? And I'm looking at the heart rate and you start to question is this really effective? Is this really what I want to be doing? Is this going to work? And, you know, one of my frames of references in 2021 uh, up in Conway, New Hampshire, you can, um, in May, they have the Crank the Kank time trial and um, registration for that is open. I've signed up. I didn't get to do it last year because I didn't know the registration was open and it filled up. Um, but I got paid attention this year and I got on the list. So I'm going to do that again. So it'll be interesting to compare, but you know, that's about, uh, 21 miles. And, uh, for me, it took 72 minutes and you go up the Kangamangas highway from Conway to the top. And it's not like an incredible epic climb or whatever, but the last, uh, the finishing climb is about five and a half percent for 4.6 miles. So it's, you know, reasonable, demanding effort. And, you know, my brother does it. And of course he does it in like, um, he does it in 58, 48, uh, 21.5 miles an hour. And he averages 368 Watts, um, for the whole thing. And, that, you know, includes the, for his finishing climb, that's, you know, 19, 18, 14 and a half miles an hour, 375 watts, right? So he's just, you know, a different level than me and different level than, than most people, to be fair. You know, for me, my overall, uh, the whole course um, was, and I'm, I'm looking at this right now, but I haven't looked at this in quite a while, and it's, it's only 321 watts for 72 minutes, which frankly is kind of like blowing my mind right now because I'm having a hard time accepting that, you know, my brother did 368 and I was uh, 321. <laughs> I mean, grant you, I weigh more than him. And, you know, that's a huge factor in terms of how fast you're actually going to do the course. But I'm actually kind of shocked that my power was that close to him. But when you look at that, you know, I mean, part of that is weighted because uh, the finishing climb, the last part of that, you know, I was averaging about about 340. And that portion of the race took me about, 
I don't know, 23 minutes, 2355, let's just call it 24 minutes. Um, you know, so you look at that and it's like, okay, you know, that's kind of a considerable boost. But, you know, nonetheless, you know, you set that aside, I still averaged um, 314, you know, the first part, which, again, I'm as I'm reading this, I'm kind of pausing because I'm like, what the F? Like, how did I do that? And, you know, my heart rate the whole way averages 180, okay, for the first part, um, just let's set aside the kind of initial part where you're kind of building into the effort. You know, once I'm into the effort, you know, and that initial at 314 watts, my heart rate's 178, and then it's steady. And then in the last part, um, I'm doing my average heart rate goes up to 186, and it starts climbing, especially towards the end. Um, you know, my heart rate got up to 197, and I was able to get, you know, a little burst up to 700 watts coming through the finish. You know, that was, well, this was definitely one of the races where, you know, I, I felt strong the whole way. And I was pretty happy with my effort. And so, you know, when I think about that heart rate data and I think about the exertion I did for that, and, you know, one way you might look at that is be like, well, you know, Tristan, that's like your peak, you peaked for that. <laughs> like, I, you know, I don't peak for things. Not only do I not taper peak for things, uh, but I also just don't peak for things because I basically never uh, successfully get in, in some sort of crescendoing fitness. I just kind of like am training and feeling out of shape. And then I just go out and I, I just try to do this stuff. So to, and that doing this didn't feel that hard, to be honest, even at the end when I was escalating the effort, I felt strong and under control. And I actually dropped my chain at one point on the last part of the course and had to get off and, and put the chain back on. And I, you know, jumped back on and kept going and it still really wasn't, it wasn't a problem. Um, so then you right, I'm on the trainer and I'm doing these, this work at 240 Watts and I'm like, wow, you know, this is so messed up. You know, this is so ridiculously, um, you know, easy. Like it's mindless. Like the Watts are low and I can, I'm good with that. But then when I get, look at the heart, I'm like, hey, my heart rate's 148. Like this is crazy. So I sort of started kind of saying, well, let me kind of lean into this a little bit and say, okay, well, what happens if I just sort of allow, like, what's that proximal zone? Like, is there an end to that? So one of the ideas is that when we train over lactate threshold, we're just going to like get crushed. If we go too hard over that, we're going to, we're going to get um, blown up. And if you look at Alex and Alex Hutchinson's article, what I think outside from the other day about this, he kind of says this idea that you're going 10% over lactate threshold, way more muscular fatigue than if you're 10% under lactate threshold. Um, and it makes sense that lactate threshold doesn't give me muscular fatigue because I don't feel like I'm doing anything, right? But where is that perception of doing something? Well, we want to remember that's come from the fact that we've been taught to perceive certain levels of exertion as impactful um, or, you know, predictive of uh, adaptive response. So I started doing the uh, Alp de Zwift a lot. Um, not like an insane amount, but like a couple times a week, I started doing it. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not really going to worry too much about that. And for reference, my best power I've done on the Alp de Zwift was 305 watts. Um, and when I did that, my average heart rate was 176. So if you look at just like this year, um, you know, since the lactate test, um, I've done it uh, seven times. And every time I've done basically a couple more watts. So the first time I did it, like 127, I was kind of, my heart rate was uh, 120, sorry, I said 127, apologize, 227 watts, heart rate 147, okay? Um, next time I did it, it was like, you know, maybe a week later. I did 240 watts, 150 beats a minute. Then two days later, 244 watts, 150 beats a minute. Um, then, uh, four days later, uh, 251 Watts, 156 beats a minute. And then two days later, 256 Watts, 154 beats per minute. Um, and then three days after that, I, my heart rate monitor has sort of been busted. So I haven't really been using that, um, cause it doesn't work. I got a new one though. So 
I'll be able to have that data for future, um, you know, explorations of the world's most important high-performing athlete, myself. And, you know, we'll be able to really solve the mystery of, you know, how to emulate my training to the nth degree. But, so I didn't have heart rate data for that, but then I, um, you know, did 256 watts uh, in my sixth attempt, um, and 154 beats, and then uh, I did 258 watts at 166 beats. So what we're seeing, right, is kind of gradually inching up the watts. And I'm not really forcing it. I'm not trying to do anything, but I'm allowing myself to kind of try to push a little bit, a little bit, right? So of course, across that scale, right, I went from doing it in 227 to 258. So let's call that 30 watts, right? Up that by 30 watts. Um, and in the last instance, I'm showing this heart rate jump of a, from hundred mid 150s to 166. Okay, so that's still way low in the heart rate compared to that crank the kank time trial, and way low in the heart rate compared to, sorry, in the watts compared to the crank the kank time trial. Okay, and it, it definitely feels like way more of an exertion than crank the kank. I mean that that crank the kank rhyme did the 321 watts for 72 minutes like the whole thing didn't even felt easier than any of these basically um it's one of those things where if you know i'm having a good day and i'm sure other people have this experience if you're just feeling strong and you go to race it just doesn't really feel that hard right maybe at the end if you're really like got the hammer down but that's not the same thing as suffering it's more of you're just like crushing it um, and you don't care if it's hard because it's it's such an empowering feeling to get after that. So the other thing that I did uh, along the way here is I did a ride up the Zwift Von 2 segment, and that took me 86 minutes, and that was like 253 watts. And my lactate, I, I checked my lactate like every 20 minutes on that because I wanted to see, you know, how did that change across. Um, I don't always check the lactate because I don't want to, you know, um, you know, have to take out uh, a mortgage to buy lactate strips. But, you know, we do this uh, periodically where we will test when we're working out and kind of see with the lactate where it's at. So in that Von 2 example, the uh, lactate um, was, you know, max 1.8, which was like 1.6 to 1.8 the whole way. And it, it felt steady. And, you know, when you're doing this, it's like, I'm just holding back. Um, th this instance where I did uh, 258 watts and my average heart rate was 166, um, that didn't feel so good. Um, it felt kind of rough. And, you know, with my effort in that, you know, essentially what happened is like the first part, first part I was like 257 and then kind of in the middle, it kind of dropped down to 240. And then, you know, that part of me that has been, you know, mentally disciplined and not be a baby is like, oh, I need to push it. And so then I kind of like after a couple of minutes, I'm like, this is bad. I'm not being productive. And I get back on the effort and then I averaged, you know, 269, 270 for the last part of it, um, which was basically like the last um, 20 minutes. OK, and I think that's really where, you know, you started to see the heart rate drive up. And I guess to be fair, I'm not saying that hypothetically. The first 40 minutes, my average heart rate was 164. And then the last part of it, my average heart rate was 173. So I was already, you know, working a little bit harder. But there's that difficulty, right, of like you're kind of looking at it and you have this external reference of like, yeah, but when I'm racing, I do such and such a heart rate. Or when I'm racing, I'm doing so many watts. But we want to basically want to recognize that that's a function of this. And what I've kind of learned through this experiment is I got to the point that I pretty much eviscerated myself, you know, and I'm now kind of been feeling a little bit in the hole. And I think what this does is just to my mind, it's sort of validating or offering verification of the fact that like, yeah, if you go to a little bit beyond that, you know, in my case, it's like, you know what, maybe it's 240 to 250 you know, is kind of that lactate threshold for me right now on the bike. And if I go a little bit over that, like, you know, that's bad. And if, especially then if I'm throwing in where I'm progressing up to 270, 
and I can do that, right? Um, and my heart rate is lower, right? So a lot of these training ideas and training zones are like, oh, well, you take this and you refer it to this race thing or that race thing. But like, you know, by that standard, okay, maybe you could argue that, well, you're not going to do 320 watts because you're not at that fitness right now, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I don't, for me, that's not like, again, a particularly significant level of fitness, but let's just pretend that it is say, okay, I can't do those watts right now. But then the logic would still be, well, your heart rate was 180 for 72 minutes. So that means when you're doing these reps, you need to get that heart rate up there. But if I'm getting to that level of stress, like if I'm getting into the, you know, 160s on the bike, working out massive muscular fatigue, um, on Monday, I was feeling pretty antsy because I didn't really do the marathon and I had done very little the two days leading up to that. Um, didn't really do the marathon. I didn't do the marathon at all. I, I, you know, went back to the car after six miles, but, um, like, you know, so I basically did nothing, you know, running six miles at that tempo is, you know, basically nothing, um, for me. And so I had energy and when I went on the trainer, I felt pretty fresh. So I did the, Epic KOM on Zwift, which for those of you who don't know, that's like, you know, simulated, right? It's Zwift, right? But it's, um, you know, 5.8 miles, 3.9%. And I did it in about 25 minutes. So I did like a 25 minute effort and uh, 20 minutes worth of that effort. I, I averaged 270. Again, I had my heart rate monitor. I haven't got my new heart rate monitor yet, but I felt pretty good, you know, and I felt like I was holding back and, you know, really could have really put the hammer down and felt strong. And then the next day went out to do the 2k threshold runs. And it's just like, wow, my legs are dead. And then, you know, to, you know, went on the bike, you know, where usually I'd go and, and, you know, bebop along at do with the Alpha Zwift or do some intervals at 240. Nope. The legs are dead. And this morning I went running, legs are dead. And I think what this shows is my little, uh, kind of like, experiment here of like, let me just allow myself um, to push um, a little bit in this, not intentionally pushing, but just sort of say, if I don't impose an absolute limit on myself, what will happen? Uh, And what happens is I get to the point where the muscular fatigue is coming crashing down out of the sky at top speed. And it's real. You know, it's like being thirsty, right? When you're not thirsty, it's very abstract. But when you are thirsty, it's like, wow, this is the worst feeling ever. I'm always going to remember what this feels like. And then when you're not thirsty, you forget about it. Same thing with muscular fatigue, right? When your legs aren't tired, it's easy to kind of forget about how limiting it is. But once when they're dead um, and you've blown those up, like it is a freaking nightmare to try to exercise where it doesn't matter how low and slow, I go, it just can't do it, you know, an absolute slug, um, you know, like, you know, no legs at all to speak of, just every stride is just like pure misery, and like, I, you know, that kind of like, I do not, I hate this sport, and I'm never going to do it again kind of a feeling, um, and I think that, like, this kind of thing, though, is what ultimately you know, provides that verification because you can take something like that Hyannis marathon story and be like, I'm not tough enough. I can't handle this. You know, I didn't do 30 mile runs, which like, what would the heck would a 30 mile run have to do, you know, with running 655, seven minute pace for just the first 20 to 40 minutes? Like absolutely nothing, right? Absolutely nothing to do with anything like that, right? But you go to those spaces and you look for the most extreme thing that you didn't do and well I didn't do that so that must be holding me back doesn't make sense right just didn't tape the feet up the right way or you know you look at something like this and you say well you know I have this frame of reference for power I've done and heart rate I've done in the past and it didn't even feel that hard to do it um, at the time if anything it felt like easy holding back and I think that you know in my specific instance and I share this as an example of kind of like, how can you look at yourself and kind of try to reach some sort of conclusions? And I think that for me, it seems to be the case that as long as I'm fresh, right, I'm not like specifically fatigued or really heavily cumulatively fatigued from uh, activity that I've been doing recently, 
I can go out and I can produce like a ton of work beyond my lactate threshold capacity. It would have been really interesting to see um, what my lactate was uh, like during, during that crank to kink. I mean, you don't know, so I'm not going to overly speculate. But um, when I did the Alpta Zwift ride, the, the last one that I did where my heart rate was 166, right, and I'm doing 270 the last 20 minutes, you know, I checked my lactate right before I finished and it was 2.8. Okay, now according to the model that people are going to be talking about more and more this year and, and maybe the next year, we'll see how long the popular the popularity wave on that will ride until enough people try to do it that the consensus becomes it doesn't work. And that's going to be because they don't know how to do it. So for me, you know, if I'm 2.8, that doesn't work for me. And that harkens back to when I had first gotten... Um, the lactate meter, and I was trying to use that 2.0 number because I hadn't really figured this stuff out at that time, and I was taking what you generally see, which is 2.0, and I talked about how I would do workouts at an intensity, and I would be totally wrecked the next day, and I did see some short-term improvement. It's not like, you you know, if you apply stress, you're going to show some sort of fitness response, but it didn't matter because it was totally unsustainable. And that's the key is like short-term fitness response doesn't validate anything, doesn't prove anything. All that it shows is that your body has the capacity to like handle stress in the short term. And then eventually it's like, nope, we're done. We're not doing this anymore. This freaking sucks. So like, you know, but then we can ask the question, like, does it feel different? Does lactate threshold feel harder or easier for people um, if their lactate occurs at different millimole levels? Because if your lactate threshold is occurring at 0. 0.9 millimoles versus 2.0 millimoles, well, then what must be true is your body is using either using more lactate or isn't demanding as much energy to to do that it doesn't necessarily mean you're better you're going to be faster or slower i'm not sure that that really matters but i because if that was the case i would be the man because (laughs) you know i can have such low lactate at my lactate threshold but i also don't think the opposite isn't true um because my brother has kind of the same thing right so then you conclude maybe it doesn't really matter but i wonder if it does matter in terms of your like perceived exertion Like, if your accumulation is two millimoles, does it feel more intense for you to do this stuff? Because for me, when I, you know, I'm working out this intensity, what I'm struggling with mentally in terms of my processing and and my reflection on what I'm doing is I feel like I'm not doing anything because the effort feels so easy. But I also know that, like, I've been programmed to perceive certain things as a productive effort that maybe aren't the productive effort. So, you know, another way to think about it is four millimole value. Does the four millimole value feel um, harder for somebody who hits lactate threshold at 0.9 versus somebody who hits it at 0.2, right? Is there any connection between the actual um, millimoles and perceived exertion? And I think the simple answer is yes, right? You know, as you have more millimoles, you tend to have more perceived exertion. But what I'm saying is if you take two people and they're both at lactate threshold, but one of them's like one of them reaches lactate threshold at two millimole, the other one reaches lactate threshold at one millimole, is there a difference in perceived exertion between those people? And does that difference like correlate to those levels of accumulation, right? Does like the body's pain response, um, you know, you think about pain as like a resistance to work, a sort of mechanism to like test um, from the unconscious part of the brain to test the consciousness to be like, okay, how important is it that we do this, right? You know, cost benefit analysis, weigh the importance of this against that level of exertion. And then what would that mean for working out? You know, does that mean that some people are going to, two people can be working about that the exact same kind of like state, right? And they both want to be in that same state, but one person is going to experience it as a joke and the other person isn't. And, you know, my experience with training has always been that like, I've been way stronger than my aerobic capacity and that I develop 
you know, strength or get strong or feel strong, if you think of exercise as a problem, right, to be solved, right, or a race as a problem to be solved, um, I think a lot of training is oriented around the idea that people's strength is the limiting factor. For me, the strength isn't the limiting factor. You know, I would go out in the mile in the 1500 in college in 62 or 63, and I would be kind of like, this is it, I'm finally going to run, you know, 410. Of course, it didn't happen because I would get exhausted, right? But for a lot of people, it's like just accessing the pace is inconceivable. But, you know, I think that's where we say, like, well, what does that look like, right? Thinking more about what kind of variances is there in that perceived exertion, and like maybe it's okay um, that there's that variance, right? And if there is that variance, then it has to be okay because that's the reality that people have to work with. But when you're trying to work with people or cue them or think about training and what that should feel like, you know, you could coach them into an effort or you could coach yourself into an effort of perceived exertion that could be driving that up. Right. If there's that kind of potential difference I'm describing and, you know, I could go out and I could do the super workout, you know, for myself. You know, I could if I'm, you know, motivated, um, you know, externally or uh, internally, I've never really found workouts to be internally motivating, but can go out and, you know, suddenly be doing something totally out of the ordinary. Like uh, the time we're doing mile repeats on the Nordic ski trails. And, you know, I ran them in whatever 530s, which, you know, aren't remarkable, but for running on the trails, you know, that was the eighth fastest average. And I just only only remember that specifically because, you know, pride cometh before the fall, right? Um, (laughs) Hubris beget nemesis. Although, to be fair, like I was just running and it felt easy, so I did it. And for whatever reason, I had, you know, enough um, sort of like easy days or I must have had before that, that I had the energy to do that. So I executed that session and like, wow, you know, you're like the alternate for the varsity on the team. And then I went to ECAC and absolutely shit a brick, you know, and ran like almost 32 minutes for 8K. You know, I was not out there executing 530 or 540 pace for 8K, not even close, didn't even get a whiff of that. You know, and it was easy for me to essentially overextend in that workout because it didn't feel like I was doing anything. And I think we sometimes think about overreaching or overextending as being this phenomena of like an, an act of significant, you know, will where, you know, you are displaying true athleticism by just like getting after it. And there's that perception of like we have to go find that you know, mental resistance and really push against that. But I wonder if for some people they can find that point of mental resistance and they push against that and they actually still stay in that kind of zone that's productive. And I wonder for other people, if we reach that point, we are absolutely wrecking ourselves because I can go out and I can make a significant effort and that I'll be dead. You know, that crank the cake time trial, just like riding back down, you know, I was already wrecked (laughs) just trying to ride back to the car. My legs were already trashed. And I don't like have a clear recollection of how I felt, um, you know, exercising the next couple of days, but I'm sure it wasn't that great, right? We tend to kind of block out those, those, some of those crappier experiences or else we probably just quit this stuff altogether. So like when we think about this concept of intensity, like, you know, I think it's more complicated than we sometimes make it out to be because there's a combination of the physiological and the subjective And I wonder, is it possible that our tendency to try to systematize it, to try to put it into some sort of model of industrial-like production, that's kind of hampering our understanding? Um, And then I think another concept, um, and maybe this is a good concept to finish on here, is it's amazing how quickly a workout or intensity that you previously thought to be epic can change for you. Or how something you would have thought of um, previously uh, changes in terms of what that means to you. For me, that's a combination of, number one, forcing myself to try to accept the fact that when I start to feel like I'm challenging um, the muscles and I'm engaging that strength, that I am already pretty strong. I might not, and that's hard to accept because 
I don't consider myself to be fast. I mean, my, I mean, for the purposes of this discussion, I will, you know, articulate that I consider myself to be absolutely terrible and incompetent um, as an athletic performer. I have extremely low uh, self-regard, and I, I, I mean, that's. I think that to be fair, that's probably maybe not totally accurate. But like that perception of like, well, I'm just trash, right, causes me. As a, as a filtering effect in terms of how I'm going to interpret uh, information about myself and what I'm doing. Um, but like, here's a training session. Um, four by 2K run in the morning at lactate threshold. And then I did that Von 2 climb, um, 86 minutes, 253 watts. And then afterwards, I just did a straight set of 10 by 245 pounds deadlift. And like the whole thing, like, all the way through just felt like stupid because I didn't feel like I was doing anything. And like, isn't it weird to look at something like that and, you know, what that means relative to me to feel like that's not doing anything. Um, and even though as I'm doing the deadlifts that my quads are literally cramping up as I'm doing them, um, I'm still walking like, I don't really know if I accomplished anything today. And <laughs> You know, it's like once there's this phenomena where, whereas at the beginning of January, if I'd done something, that's crazy, you know, but those parameters can shift really quickly. Um, and I think actually by doing that, I think that's the great example because I sort of, that's what, after doing that session, that's when I've sort of have felt kind of stale for a while, you know, and could it, it could have been doing the 86 minutes instead of 60 minutes. It could have been, you know, doing and very likely could have been doing the deadlifts right after. And when I did them and it's like, oh, my quads are cramping. I think that shows two things. I think it shows number one, that even though the running and the riding at lactate threshold felt stupidly easy, I actually was putting a lot of stress on the system because I'm not, it's not like every time I go to deadlift 245, I cramp, but also I should have put the weight down and walked away. But our desire to get that benefit Right. To be like, wow, you know, I thought I thought this morning that I'm going to do these three things and I'm going to execute this lift. So I need to do this lift because there's this idea that like, well, if I don't do that, then I've accomplished nothing. And of course, the irony is then you do it. And you still feel like maybe you've accomplished nothing. So, you know, what do we do when we think about this concept? And in a later episode, one of the things that I want to think about is all of these different terms that have come up around lactate. Let's name a few. Lactate clearance, lactate buffering, lactate steady state, lactate sweet spot, lactate shuttling, lactate tolerance, okay? And something like lactate shuttling is more of like a, the mechanism of the lactate and why it's in the blood, but that has been morphed into a like training concept. Um, and how these kinds of things, I think, overcomplicate. And the reason why I think they overcomplicate is I think they make it difficult um, to figure out what if you're doing is productive. And, you know, what I'm working to learn, and I'm, you know, in my 30s, you know, and I've been doing this stuff. um, It just happens to be the number, but I've been doing this stuff for over 20 years. And, you know, I'm still trying to navigate that space um, of like, how do I know if what I'm doing is the right amount. And I think that when we have all of these dialogues and, and these discussions and these narratives and we kind of tell these epic stories of people doing the super hard, super hard thing and like overcoming the misery of the workout, like maybe that's not true. And in the fall, in um, November, I'm going to run the Manchester Marathon. In December, I'm going to run the Millinocket Marathon. And I am not a marathoner. I do not consider myself to be a marathoner. I am not obsessed with the marathon. But I like the marathon conditioning idea. And I've enjoyed some of those longer runs. And um, I started doing some 30-mile runs. I was like, well, I guess I can just do marathons too if I feel like it. It's really not that big of a deal. It's still a little bit of a learning curve. But I think to some extent, the sort of marathon as a rite of passage is somewhat overrated. So we will see... Um, on that time scale, kind of what this looks like. And um, as I go, I'm going to try to be more consistent and do my best to sort of stay within these reasonable limits. And that's the experiment. Because I think just on the scale of like 
a week, I put myself in the friggin' hole um, very quickly, you know, by from overreaching. And I think that's really the real definition of overreaching is it doesn't feel like you're overreaching. It's just like, oh, my legs are dead. And now I can't do anything, you know. And so we'll see. Um, my prediction is I think in one of those two marathons, I think I'll run under 250. That's my prediction slash aspiration. So that's like 625 or 626 pace. So we'll see how that goes. I've run 309. You know, I'm also acknowledging that I'm not really fixated on marathoning. I'm going to kind of do, I'm not going to pick up a marathon program. I'm going to be doing my combination of running and, um, you know, lifting um, which compared to other people's lifting is probably relatively modest, but lifting and riding and see what that looks like um, at the end of the calendar year at those races. And I'll try to come on the pod and talk specifically about you know where I think the, the fitness is. But there's other races that I'm going to be doing along the way on the bike and, and running and whatnot. So it's not a single-minded, like I now go you know into the wilderness to prepare for these. But my th- theory is that if I avoid the muscular fatigue, regardless of how low the heart rate is, regardless of how low the watts is, regardless of how slow the running is, I think by the end of the year, I'll be able to run about 630 to 620 pace for 26 miles. So we will see what we will see. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Black Cats Run. If you've enjoyed this episode or other episodes on the podcast, you can send us a message. Let us know what questions you have, if there's other things you want to hear us cover. We've really enjoyed hearing all of the great feedback and great questions from people. It's given us a ton of different ideas of things to talk about, things to cover on the podcast. Thank you. If you are interested in understanding or learning more about how you can apply this to your own training, we are available for consultation. Feel free to send us a message or give us a follow on Instagram at Black Cats Run. We'll catch you next time.